Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down. Everybody. Wow, look at that. That crowd. They see they weren't done yet. Look at that. They're How's amazing. it going, RFM? Well, it's going great. I am off just off of the most wonderful weekend of my life, going down to California and uh, having a great time there at the Magic Castle. I was flown down there and feted by my good friend Randall Bell. And I think it's okay to mention his name publicly now. There was a time when he was sort of not public, but now he is after he was on Mormon Stories. So yeah, he's out there and it's okay to mention his name. And just what a wonderful guy, what a wonderful friend. And we went to the Magic Castle. We also went to um, some sites relating to Leo Fender. He showed me where Leo Fender actually invented the electric guitar back in the 1940s, I believe it was. And Randall's dad worked for Leo Fender at the shop where once it got popular, it actually exploded in popularity and still is today, I understand. And uh, that is now a speed and custom shop where they work on really, really nice cars. It's called Max Speed and Custom Shop. They gave me a free t-shirt. So I told them that I would advertise it on tonight's show. So that's in Fullerton, California for all your automotive needs, everyone. I heard the trip was magical. Oh my gosh, it was incredible. I actually could tell you stories about it that would take longer than we have tonight. And somebody is saying something that they shouldn't be saying because there is no birthday. There is no birthday for RFM. Yeah, no, no, no. I was not born. I was actually, uh, it was the Stanford, the Stanford, California hospital. I was the result of a, an experiment gone horribly wrong is how I came into being. So, but thank you, everybody. Uh, I have no idea. How is this word getting out there, Bill? Have you been talking? Uh, I haven't said a word to anyone, but, you know, secrets secrets do get out. You know what I mean? Yeah. They have a way of doing that, don't if they? If you make it sacred, there's less of a chance. But if it's just a secret, it has, it has a you know, a decent chance of getting out there. Nature finds a way. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, and so today is a sobering day because it's the 11th anniversary of my dad's passing away mm. on March 9, 2011. So I think of him today, and of course, he passed away the day before my birthday, which is actually tomorrow. So thank you, everybody. You're wonderful. You don't have to sing happy birthday to me, Bill. That's fine. Anyway, so we're. Uh, did you want to say anything about... Uh, uh, What's going on in your life, Bill? Let's well, put the focus well, I, on you. I want to sing happy birthday to you, but I'm worried that, you know, you're, I'm going to cause a, a disturbance inside you, right? Or in the force, as the case may be. <laughs> so I don't know. Like, I feel like I'm stuck over here on an island and I don't know what to do. Yes. Island Nebular or we whatever it is. We should just do it and get it out of the way. <laughs> yeah. We're just doing quotes exclusively from Steven Spielberg movies tonight <laughs> is what we're doing. Okay. He did Ghostbusters too, right? No, no. Okay. <laughs> 
All right. Yeah, I'm not. That's just not my thing. I don't know references to movies and producers. And and that's okay. Directors. That's okay because you know a lot of really important stuff. Not really. Like how, <laughs> like how to get this podcast off the dime. We, we seem to be in a quagmire here presently. But no we've sweat. got a wonderful show tonight. Now, I want to give you a chance to say anything you want to at this point, Bill, before I launch into the introduction to our special guest. Only a little thing, which is this morning I did a one-hour short podcast uh, just kind of giving a state of the union, Not no no pun intended in terms of uh, things going on in the world today, but a state of the union for Mormon Discussion Incorporated, talked about all the new podcasts we brought on board and all the podcasts that were existing, including yours, and gave a plug for you and Marriage on a Tightrope, along with all the new ones. And uh, it, I thought it went well, and um, if people want to check that out, they can go to the Mormon Discussion podcast.org and watch it there. Otherwise, I'm ready for you to rock and roll. Well, great. Just tell me you didn't forget Rami Umptum Ruminations. Oh, again. I didn't forget Rami Umptum Ruminations. <laughs> we, we mentioned Scott. Okay, good. 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 Fantastic. That was what, what I was concerned about. Awesome. And as listeners to this program know, uh, you understand the joke. So tonight we have in the house David Bakavoy. And for the one person out there who may not know who he is, let me tell you a little bit about him. This will be brief, okay? But pay attention because this guy knows stuff and he's got a lot of education. David Bakavoy holds a PhD in Hebrew Bible and the ancient Near East and an MA in Near Eastern and Judaic Studies, both from Brandeis University. That's a big deal. He received his BA from Brigham Young University. Not such a big deal but still good, majoring in history, I hope he's laughing in the green room, majoring in history and minoring in Near Eastern Studies. In addition to his work in Mormon Studies, David has published articles on the Hebrew Bible. Uh, his specialty has to do with Bible studies. Um, so he's published on the Hebrew Bible in a variety of academic venues, including the Journal of Biblical Literature, Vetus excuse me, Vetus Testamentum, I'm sorry, my Latin is a little bit rusty there. That's Bless the name you. of the journal. I'm sorry, what? Bless yeah, Gesundheit. <laughs> now you're stealing my lines. Studies in the Bible and Antiquity, another journal, and the Farms Review. Mm. He is the co-author of the book Testaments, links between the Book of Mormon and the Hebrew Bible. And I think the other author was um, John Twetness, if memory serves, because I actually got that book when it came out a number of years ago and read through it. Very interesting stuff. So we can bring him on in a second, but I also want to say he's, he's published a very important book. This came out in 2014. Whoa. Authoring the Old Testament. We've yeah. got one here in both studios. No, wait, yours is an advanced reading copy? Yeah, mine's the advanced reading copy because I interviewed David Bakavoy about his book. In 2013? 14, 15, somewhere in there. Okay, because it actually came out in 2014. So I got it after it came out. So anyway, this is a wonderful book. Absolutely fantastic. I read it back in 2016. Very impressed by it. But let's bring David on so we can talk about sex, sex, and sex. <laughs> oh, no, wait a second. Uh, it's sex, Eden, and the family. And I got to say, the Garden of Eden is my favorite topic in all of the world, and sex is my second favorite. So wow, we're going to... 
we're going to really get it tonight. Well, Bill, I would just reverse those two myself, but at least we're kindred and on the same <laughs> wavelength. Yeah, we can tell the same stories around the fire. <laughs> yeah, very good. Thank you so much. It's so good to be with you guys and for the nice introduction. Are we really not going to sing happy birthday? Well, I can't stop you from here because I'm in another state. <laughs> I can beg, and I hear the audience begging you not to as well. Yeah, all right, all right. It, it, you know, I, uh, I it, well, happy birthday, and I appreciate the opportunity to be on with you guys. I don't do a lot of things like this anymore. I, not only do I not listen to podcasts, in fact, I'm going to openly admit this is my first experience with Mormonism Live. I hope that doesn't hurt anyone's feelings. I obviously have listened to many RFM podcasts. I've I've uh, listened to many of Bill Reels um, over the years and have love and respect for you both and your wit and your intelligence and your critical thinking abilities. So um, this is this is fun for me to kind of come back into a world that I, I'm not much involved with anymore. What is bringing you back? Because this is like Godfather 3 Al Pacino. Just when I think I'm out, they pull me back in. You know, I, I don't, I don't know what it is. I, I, I guess maybe I, well, first of all, you know, I did pick up a little bit of interest um, when you were having the RFM, when you did the discussion with the uh, Midnight Mormon crew. The three amigos. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I just, there was so much drama with that. And I just, I was like, you know, I, of course I'm, I'm catching it. Finally, I'm like, ah, okay. It's like, you know, I'll get pulled in and, and, and listen a little bit. I, I, I listened to a little bit of that presentation. It kind of got me thinking about some things and into this world a bit. Um, I have been actively involved um, with the, the Thrive community. Um, I'm in a different place now, myself and my wife, and that, uh, you know, meetings, uh, health, self-help groups, it, it, conventions such as that are, are not particularly interesting to me. Uh, but I love to dance and I love live music and I love parties and I love karaoke and I love to get together, especially with the post-Mormon community. And so whenever there's a Thrive social event, I've participated. And then it was Thrive Day and I uh, was asked and invited to join in to, with the Portland group. And I, and I, I said, sure, I'll go in and, and go. And I sat and I listened to each of the presentations and they were wonderful, you guys. I, I, I thought they were fantastic. Each one was on how to live a healthy good life. Um, it really was focused on positivity. And and then at the end of the of the evening, we met a bunch of people and we said, okay, well, it's over. Where do you go dance here in Portland? And we took the whole group out dancing that evening and had a great time. So I guess I'm, I'm, I'm admitting that I'm, I, I, that I'll never be free from this world entirely. It's, it, it's, and I don't want to be either. I don't mean to su suggest that, but, um, yeah, I, I'm involved to, to, to some extent. So. Well, let me tell you, if there was anything and only one thing that happened as a result of that fiasco of a debate back in November with Midnight Mormons, you getting back in the arena makes it all worthwhile. <laughs> and I'm serious about that. Okay. Well, it, it, it was just, it was so strange to me, though, the, the, just the way they arrived and what they were wearing and, and, and going on. And it just, it shouldn't be like that. But anyway, I don't, I don't, I don't want to talk about that stuff. I just, I'm just saying that that's kind of, those are some, I got, I started listening to that. I started thinking of some ideas and things that I would like to talk about and perhaps share with you guys. And so in those conversations, the invitation was extended and I am grateful for it because um, I love visiting with you guys. I look forward to being with your audience for the next little while and, and having a conversation that is um, not only interesting, but um, 
is is very important and very meaningful. The con, uh, the uh, you know, talking about sexuality and and a healthy approach to it intellectually and spiritually, uh, I think is very important. So I I think we're going to talk about that as well as the family proclamation and um, anthropological studies that would then shed some light on human sexuality, how that might connect with the Eden story and with the family proclamation. I don't know. I don't know. We I, I, we don't have an outline, and and we and just to share with the audience, we haven't discussed what we're going to talk about. This is an open-ended conversation, and and I uh, look forward to it. So thank you both. Well, I do too because I've got no idea what you're going to say. So all I can say is the floor <laughs> is yours. The title of tonight's podcast was yours, yeah. and uh, please tell us what sex, Eden, and the family means. Well. Since this is Mormonism Live, and it's a show, obviously, that focuses on topics that are of interest to a post-Mormon and Mormon community, uh, I, maybe we'll jump off starting that way. I've been interested in the family proclamation for quite some time, obviously, since it came out. I don't want to get too bogged down in the details of how it was written and the studies that have been done to discuss the cultural context of that and and, and so forth. But I thought maybe it would be good to jump into this and and then kind of dissect a few thoughts and put that into the context of the historical understanding of the text that they are drawing upon for the family proclamation. Talk about some anthropological views on human sexuality and then, you know, bring it all home, I guess. So I'm going to go ahead and I will pull up that document right now. So the family proclamation, as our audience will be aware of, it came forward. I remember when it came out and I was actually still, I was visiting I, in my home in, in, in San Diego and uh, quite young at the time. And uh, it, it was an interesting document. I didn't find it too controversial at the time, but as, as time has moved forward, I've realized that um, many of my own views and convictions do not adhere with it. Um, but I, I want to skip down and focus um, on the, I guess it's about the third paragraph, where this document opens up and states, quote, the first commandment that God gave to Adam and Eve pertains to their potential for parenthood as husband and wife. We declare that God's commandment for his children to multiply and replenish the earth remains in force. We further declare that God has commanded that the sacred powers of procreation are to be employed only between man and woman, lawfully wedded as husband and wife. We declare the means by which mortal life is created to be divinely appointed. We affirm the sanctity of life and its importance in God's eternal plan. Husband and wife have a solemn responsibility to love and care for each other and for their children. And then they go on to quote Psalm 127, verse 3. We read, the family is ordained of God. I'm skipping down. Marriage between man and woman is essential to his eternal plan, and so forth and so on. Um, my goal this evening in our conversation is not to denigrate spiritual beliefs or to um, suggest that the understanding that Latter-day Saints hold on God and the purpose of life is incorrect. Um, that's not for me to say. Those would be religious convictions beyond my ability to assess. Now, I can, as a critically minded person, talk about how those religious constructs can cause harm or problems for people. But um, at the end of the day, 
it's it's those who know me i i feel I, I appreciate spirituality and I want Mormons to be the best Mormons that they can possibly be. I want Catholics to be the best Catholics they can be and Buddhist and so forth. And, and I want to support people in their efforts to promote kindness and love to the extent that's possible. At the same time, I also believe that we should be critically minded and engage critically religious text and their assertions and find out where they're drawn from and how that, how that understanding either reflects or is in disconnect, as the case might be, with critical scholarship and anthropological studies and how that understanding might affect us as we not only look at the document, but consider then uh, its application and its use and how it affects the lives of individuals. So maybe that's a good place to jump off with and I'll then um, jump into this and, and backtrack to this concept that the first commandment that God gave to Adam and Eve pertained to their potential for parenthood as husband and wife. Now, where do we think, they don't give an allusion here to a scriptural text, but it's probably pretty easy as, for us to decipher what text that they're referring to, right? I'm, I'm assuming early in Genesis, right? Like we're probably Genesis chapter one or two or something. Yeah, that, it's actually going to be, and that's important, Bill, it's, is which one it is. Is it one or is it two that they're alluding to? The two to? different creation stories and both seem to come from different um, storylines. Precisely. Yeah. And indeed, what they're, what they're alluding to is actually Genesis chapter one. And in Genesis chapter one, there is, oh, down to... Um, when the humans are created, um, we read uh, verse 27, and I pulled it up on now on my computer screen. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them, and God blessed them, and God said unto them, be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth, and then, of course, subdue it as well. Well, that's what they're alluding to then. They are alluding to Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. Again, returning to the document. The first commandment that God gave to Adam and Eve pertained to their potential for parenthood as husband and wife. I think they're alluding to that, but they may be alluding to another text. If the allusion is to Genesis chapter 1 that I just identified, we have a problem. And Bill, you've already hinted at that, and it's one that's discussed openly in my book. And that is the story of Adam and Eve, which begins in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4b, which means the second half of verse 4, is the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 1 through Genesis chapter 2, verse 4a, so the first half of that verse, comes from a separate literary tradition that has been taken by the editor, scholars use the term redactor, and brought into the beginning of the book of Genesis. And so now it stands as kind of a segue or introduction to the Adam and Eve story. And so the way that most Christians, including Latter-day Saints and the authors of this text, approach the chapters of Genesis is as if they are a literary whole. They are not, as I discuss openly in my book. In fact, Genesis chapter 2, we'll just simplify it and refer to it that way from now on, the story of Adam and Eve was written first, before Genesis chapter 1, and they have a different structure for creation. 
creation happens in an entirely different way. In Genesis chapter one, God will simply speak and the earth comes in its various forms and life comes into existence. He's very distant and removed, whereas God is very human-like in Genesis chapter two. He actually gets down in the dirt and messes with the dirt to create life. And the sequence is different. The names for God are different in each account. The technical term Elohim, um, a concretized masculine plural form of the root Eloah, which is a cognate in Hebrew to the Arabic Allah, is the term that is used for the deity in Genesis chapter one, whereas the divine name Yahweh, translated as Lord, all in capital letters in the King James Bible, is the name for that divine being there. Hopefully our audience has gone through some of the podcasts that we've done, the interviews that I've done with both you, RFM and Bill, Mormon Stories. We've talked a lot about that. Even better, grab the book, read it, and understand how these documents were created and how they relate to one another. Can I ask a quick question, David? Sure, of course. So knowing that Genesis 1 and 2 are two very complete, completely different stories coming from different tracks, <clears throat> it seems to me we could go back into chapter 1 and we could understand he created male and female, he created them, could be understood to be all males and females. Like he created gender, there's males, there's females, rather than saying there's one male and one female, there's an Adam and there's an Eve, um, which seems to come about in chapter two, who that male and female are. So it's chapter two that imposes on us that we understand the male and female is singular in these two specific people. But I don't think chapter one imposes that on us on its own. It does not, and it never refers to an Adam and Eve at <clears throat> all um, as proper nouns. In fact, um, the in fact, even in Genesis chapter two, the name for Eve is only given after she consumes the fruit of knowledge. Up to that point in the narrative, she is always called the woman. She receives the name Eve, life giver, as a result of eating the fruit. And this is actually quite important. Thank you, Bill, for that, that question and observation, because recognizing, again, what the family proclamation is asserting, God gave a, a commandment to Adam and Eve pertaining to their potential for parenthood. In Genesis chapter 1, humans are commanded to multiply and replenish the earth. But in the earlier creation account that now appears in chapter 2, written by a separate author with a very different view on God, humanity, and the cosmos, in that one, the very first command that is given to Adam and Eve, it pertains to their potential of parenthood. So the document is technically correct, but they don't understand why. The document, the LDS doc proclamation, the family is asserting that it, of course, it's because God wanted Adam and Eve to become parents. Well, in Genesis chapter two, God in no way wants that to transpire. He makes it very clear with the very first commandment that he gives, to them not to eat the fruit that will specifically grant sexual awareness. That is what the fruit presents and what it offers. It's, it, that's, not, that's not controversial. Even the Book of Mormon goes so far as to have Lehi state the words that, uh, I, I, that our first parents, um, Adam and Eve, if they had not partaken of the fruit, they never would have had children. So the, even there's a recognition in that text in Mormonism that that uh, the, the fruit leads to a specific type of knowledge. In fact, even the word to know in Hebrew um, is used for sexual knowledge, to know biblically, we sometimes colloquially refer to. 
Um, in fact, the fruit is called the fruit of knowledge. And the first time that then the humans exercise the knowledge is in Genesis chapter four, verse one, where it states that the man knew, yada, in Hebrew, same exact verb, the man knew his wife, she conceives, and she has a child named Cain. So the knowledge they obtain is specifically linked with sexuality. And if we think about the story, the first thing that they know is what? What do they recognize? That they're naked. That they're naked. They recognize nudity and, 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 and nakedness. And then they recognize a need for clothing. Um, the curses that are given are co directly connected with the uh, procreation. The woman has is going to have very painful childbirth and delivery as a result of this, of having eaten from this fruit. And yet then the statement is given in the curse where it states, the God states, however, you cannot escape this and just say, okay, well, forget it. I won't have sex. I know about it, but I'm just not going to have it because then the rest of that verse states, and yet your desire will be for your husband. She's going to desire husband. She's going to desire sex. So you can't escape it because you desire it. And it's going to be painful. And in fact, if we go into the ancient world, when this document was produced, um, childbirth was obviously the um, leading cause of death for women in this ancient environment. So it's a, it's, it's there, the, the document is correct. The first commandment that God gave to Adam and Eve pertained to their potential for parenthood. But they don't understand why, because they don't understand documentary analysis. In Genesis chapter one, God wants the humans to multiply and replenish the earth. In Genesis chapter two, God doesn't want the humans to gain that awareness. In fact, that whole tradition, the stories that are found in that part of Genesis, include story after story where God is trying to keep humans dependent upon him and does not want them to become too godlike. And so he wants to tear down a tower of Babel and he wants to produce a flood and he wants to do everything he possibly can to keep them dependent upon him and childlike in this tradition. He does not want them to gain sexual awareness. So the document is correct, but they don't understand why, because they are interpreting that first commandment as the one given in the Genesis chapter one tradition. Have I explained that okay? I think so. The part that always confuses me is just that Genesis chapter one is the later version and Genesis chapter two is the earlier version. It's just exactly the opposite yeah, of what you would expect. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. So, you know, and then they're, what they're also referring to, and I'm going to jump to chapter two, and I know they're alluding to this because they'll, they'll often use it in, in LDS literature and in its curriculum writing, but let me jump to chapter two of Genesis and I'll and I'll pull up the statement, which I think is very interesting. Um, and while this, you're pulling that up, David, yeah. I'll just mention that your connection between the mm -hmm. tree of knowledge and knowing mm -hmm. the man, knowing the woman to know somebody in the biblical sense mm -hmm. blows my mind. I have never heard somebody make that connection before. Oh, you know, that's what my dissertation explores. Um, I was, uh, I was very interested in divine counsel imagery in the Hebrew Bible. I'd written quite a bit on it, and I knew when it came time for my dissertation that I would explore that idea, but I didn't know exactly what I would do with it. Well, um, what, what happened was is that I was reading the Eden story, and of course, the serpent states that um, to the woman, well, God's not telling you the truth. You're not going to die when you eat this fruit. You'll actually 
become like the gods, he states, knowing. And then he says, knowing good and bad. And, um, and then later on in the story, after they eat from the fruit, the Lord Yahweh, he accepts the legitimacy of the serpent's observation. He says to a non-specified audience, look, the man has become like one of us. We shouldn't allow this. Let's cast him forth out of the garden. And so he does. Well, I started thinking about it and I started thinking, well, okay, a non-specified audience that's making a judgment and passing a judgment upon conditions in um, in the world, that's divine counsel imagery. Of course, he's talking to the gods. And once you recognize that, then you recognize, my goodness, okay, well, then the serpent is right. They became like the gods because that's what the Lord says. Look, the man has become like one of us. So if, as I've just suggested, and I'm not the only one, I think it's pretty universal. People recognize, even the Book of Mormon, I mentioned that it is sexual awareness that they grant. If they become sexually aware like the gods, then that would imply that the gods of the council, including the God in at least this biblical strand, um, were viewed as, as sexually active deities, which would make them very much like the deities that we see in other ancient Near Eastern traditions. So in essence, that's what my, well, my dissertation then began to explore, is that possibility. And um, it was a it was a wonderful study, but this will take us to the other parts of this of conversation because I had to, you guys, jump into anthropological studies on human sexuality at that point, some of which are included in my dissertation, which was finished in 2012. And then from that point onward, I have continued an academic interest in human sexuality as interpreted through an anthropological lens. And I I find that very fascinating. Human sexuality is very different than animal sexuality and as a whole. And that's what ultimately I argue that this account is trying to accomplish. It's trying, it's like a just so story, you know, how the elephant got its trunk or something like that. Let us explain why humans have unique sexual practices. Well, what happened? How did this happen? And that's ultimately what's transpiring here in the account. So that's 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 a little bit about my dissertation and, and why it's been my academic interest and passion for a little while. Can I ask you a question, David? Sure. Actually, two questions. First off, there's an audience request that you adjust your camera so that they can get the full effect of your wonderful beard. <laughs> okay. I don't have my picture up. I'm looking at I'm looking at the Bible. Oh, a Bible, a Bible. Yeah, if you can just pull it down just a little bit. Okay. With the top towards I'm not you. even seeing There that. you go. Ooh, baby. Good? Oh, yeah. All right. Well, That's great. You, the picture you guys chose was so beautiful, uh, 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 as beautiful a picture of me as it possibly can be, but it was beautiful because it was all Vikinged out with like nice curls and stuff <laughs> like that. <laughs> and the second one, is it also correct that the imagery of the Tree of Knowledge is enhanced by the fact that the serpent was considered to be a symbol of wisdom? What, yes. Um, you know, I think the serpent uh, imagery that comes through there, well, first of all, it's important for our audience to recognize that the concept of Satan does not appear in the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, ever. The concept of Satan is a much later construct that evolves in Judaism um, through its contact with Zoroastrianism, an Iranian or Persian indigenous religious practice. In fact, through its the imprint that Zoroastrianism will have on Judaism, Judaism will begin to have 
a view of angels. It will have a view of an afterlife. It will develop an idea of an apocalyptic ending to the world. So many of these things that are important to Christianity actually are not found in the Old Testament or academically the Hebrew Bible. So going back to the image of the snake, he's not, it, it's a snake, it's a serpent. And, and it, I think it comes ultimately from the Epic of Gilgamesh, a uh, Babylonian account um, that influ influenced this particular narrative. So was that two questions or one? That was the two, that was a, both, yes, that you've covered everything. Thank you. But I think also the snake, though, I mean, the mere fact that it's a snake and kind of phallic, right? Um, yes. Is, is interesting. The mere fact, and I explored this, even the mere fact that it happens in a garden where gardens are very sexual, um, sexually charged locations in the Hebrew Bible. Um, think about the song of, of, of songs. Susanna. Mm -hmm. Oh, sorry. No, I mean, they're, they're very, they're, gardens are places of sexuality. The other thing that I discovered is even the uh, polar expression or marismus, where you take two opposite words, good and bad, that that is a, an expression that is found that is used specifically for recognizing not just good and bad, but attractive versus not attractive. So what is sexually, you know, compelling and what is sexually not compelling? And, and, and so all of these things tie together as to what is happening here. And I apologize. I jumped in with Susanna because it brought to my mind the, the tale from the Apocrypha, Susanna and the elders. Elder, yes, of course. Of course. All right. I, I don't, I don't want to get ahead. lost in the weeds either, no, David, no, no, but um, it, it seems the garden story has always struck me as this fruit, which will alter their consciousness, right? By taking it. Yeah. And religions are always trying to control. They always want to be the distributors of knowledge. Um, they don't really want you going outside the tracks looking for it. And it plays out in this garden story where the fruit will give you knowledge of good and evil. It really does do that. Satan was telling the truth. And the religious story is there to prevent you from taking anything outside of the religion's prescribed way of salvation to partake of something that exposes you to an altered consciousness. Um I don't want to get off into the, the drug story and try to play it off that way, but just to recognize that what religion's done for thousands and thousands of years is to say, we have the way don't go look at anything outside of that. And it plays out again in this, in this very original story where they try to control God is controlling the information. Interesting. So what you're saying is that the fruit is actually a psychedelic mushroom. I'm open to that. It's, it could be <laughs> okay, anything but... that, yeah, anything that plays out that way. Okay. No, no, no. Yeah. I Very profound observations, Bill. Yeah. I really like that. And, and I would say even if it's not a psychedelic mind-altering uh, substance, I think it can at least represent the idea that the gods in that one account, Genesis 2, I think you said, are wanting to keep them uh, infantilized, mm -hmm. which we know about as members of the LDS church, yeah. because the church spends all its time infantilizing its members and trying to keep them from growing up and yeah. being exposed to greater knowledge. And then when they do grow up, a lot of times, uh, as God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden, Bill, sometimes church leaders can kick members out of the church. Yeah, the garden is the peaceful, sacred, holy place, and now you're among the thistles and the thorns. Yep, it is the Shire. Yeah, yeah. fascinating. Those are that's an interesting way of reading this account. 
Uh, I appreciate those comments. I'm going to jump back to Genesis 2 and link us then to where I was going. I was going to take us to where I think the family proclamation is also alluding. And that's after, and now I'm in the store, actual story of Adam and Eve when they are created. Um, I'm in Genesis chapter 2, verse 23. Adam said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Well, all of that is a, a wordplay. Um, and it's a pun. The puns drive the narrative events in this story. For example, the man, do you remember how he was created? What was he taken out of? The mud, the red yeah. mud, right? So the Hebrew word is Adama. So you can actually hear it. Adama, Adam. You could literally extract Adam out of Adama, the Hebrew word. So it's the pun that drives the narrative. Just as you could take the word Adam out of Adama, ground, you, the man is taken from out of the ground. Well, this one's a reverse pun because the word for woman is Isha, and the word for man is Ish. And it also is also another reversal because it's literally men and women, but that come out of woman's body. So man here, it's a reversal. Man is, in essence, giving birth to the woman, and it's a play upon Isha and Ish in the same way that Adam and Adama were. Lest we get too sidetracked with that, verse 24 is where the family proclamation wants to take us, where the account states, therefore, because this happened, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife. They shall be one flesh. And this is what is in, being interpreted as a commandment to marry as husband and wife in this solemn plan. We've already talked about the fact that the God here does not want the humans to get married and he does not want them to have sex and he doesn't want them to have this knowledge. So it's already not adhering to the actual story that appears in the Hebrew Bible, but it's even more important to recognize that nowhere does the account have God state those words. That is the narrative. That is the omniscient narrator telling us what happened because the woman was taken from out of the man and um, was created from his rib from created from his rib and taken out of his body. Therefore, since this happens, the humans want to get back together and copulate and become one body again and have sexual intercourse. And this is why humans get married. So the, the narrator is telling us why marriage happens. Never once does God say this is something that should transpire or even this is something that is commanded to happen, not in the context. That, that is a misreading. And I would go so far as to state that if the purpose was to create that partner for a marriage, as the proclamation is asserting ultimately, if that was the purpose, then, then God was planning bestiality. And I don't say that lightly, and I hate to be shocking with it, but the word that is used for the helper that he wants, because remember when God creates, he's like, okay, the man is created to cultivate and take care of the garden. It's not good that the man should do that alone. It's a big task. So let's create him helpers in Eitzer in Hebrew. Let's create a helper. So he creates the animals. And it makes sense for an agrarian society where animals help plow and help cultivate the land and take care of farmlands and gardens and things like that. And so the animals are created before the woman, and they are created to fulfill that role of the helpmeet, if you want to use good King James Bible. So if the purpose of creating a helpmeet was to create a sexual partner 
a marriage, since the animals were the first to be created to fulfill that role, then the very logic that, that is being suggested here is bestiality. That, and do you, does that logic make sense? Yes. I'm, not, it, I, I'm sorry. I'm not saying does does it make sense that God would want bestiality. Right. I'm asking if, if the analysis and why uh, the way I'm breaking down and showing it, do you think if I explained that, okay, as to why I think it's a problematic assertion to say the purpose here is marriage between a man and a woman? Yes, I understand your train of thought. Okay. All right. I'm glad. I, I think it went through. So it, it, just I, one other little quick, again, I'm, I don't mean to go up. I'm going to be the guy that no, gets no, us off track a bunch. No, I just good. want to note the next verse, by the way, Genesis chapter two, verse 25, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. There wasn't any shame until God or religion comes along and says, Hey, you're naked. Do something about that. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. That uh, it isn't, it's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating account. And it, you know, the problem with, with reading this and applying it to the modern family too rigidly um, is that it, it creates misunderstanding, it creates heartache, it creates problems for people that cannot, for one reason or another, fit neatly into this narrative. And that includes a major percentage of the human population. So uh, this is an ancient story. It's a myth. It, and I'm not suggesting it doesn't contain truths. I think we can read truths in it. I think we can learn from it. I, I, I think we can, at minimum, we can learn at how ancient Israelites saw their world and their understanding of spirituality and human relationships and God. But the second we try to take this and rigidly apply it into God's plan for families today and for human sexuality, everything breaks apart. Very interesting. Now, somebody had mentioned in the comments about Lilith, and a lot of people know the name Lilith, but are not aware of how she fits in. And it's my understanding, not to get off the track, but just hopefully to explain it, is that Lilith came about as part of Jewish exegesis mm -hmm. of the first two chapters of Genesis because of the two creation accounts. In the first account, a woman is created, and then it's like she disappears because... In the second chapter, we start with the creation account again, and now we get Eve. And so the question arose, well, what happened to the first woman that was created, not recognizing it's two separate accounts and thinking of it as one account? And thereby, Lilith came to be a name that was created. And actually, I think a whole story had to be created about what happened to this first woman and why is it that she didn't work out and God had to create a second woman whose name was Eve. Is, do I have that right, basically? That, that's really well said, RFM. That's perfect. And yes, she is very much like Satan, a later Jewish construct that comes into their religious tradition. And yeah, yeah, it is an approach. She, You can find her there, I guess, if you're reading holistically and not understanding uh, that these are separate documents. But indeed, perfectly said. I, I think it would be good, though, and I really wanted to jump to this to, to, to talk about how this story, um, really what it's trying to do is to say that human sex is different than animal sex. And that's why these animals are created. It doesn't work out well. So the woman is created and then they, they want to hook up together and link up because they're created from the same body. They want to become one body again. And then later the actual pronouncements that God gives pertain to sexuality and what will happen with humanity moving forward. 
The purpose of the story, therefore, is to explain human sexuality. It is like the gods of the ancient Near East is what I argue. I, I think I'm right on that. I went from, it was interesting. I went from, well, that's kind of a cool reading. I'm, I'm probably not right, but it's it's worth exploring because it's it's fascinating and it, it's there's evidence for it. I went through reading it and 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 digging in the research, thinking, you know what? I actually think I think that's a correct interpretation. I I I, I do think that's what's going on there. Now, if we just consider then and just think about how different humans are in our sexual practices than animals are generally, and these are things that ancient Israelites would have looked at and observed. Uh, one of the things that they would have looked at and observed with all the other animal species that they dissected, that they cut up and ate, that they sacrificed, all of the males had a penal bone or a bacalum is the technical term for that. Well, um, Homo sapiens do not rely upon a rigid bone to obtain an erection. Instead, um, hydraulics and fluids, right? So it's it's a different system. and ancient Israelites really wouldn't have been aware of any of the animal species that, that didn't have that penal bone. So some scholars theorize that what the rib is that is extracted from the man's body and that is used to create the woman is in fact that penal bone, which explains the loss of it in humans. Aha. Uh -huh. So that just gives you an idea as to where this story can and perhaps should go anthropologically. Now, if you think about also other ways that humans are very different, well, humans wear clothes, and the story obviously addresses that. Humans, unlike animals, typically do not engage in sexual practices out in public or in the open. It's typically in private. Why do humans do that? Why do humans wear clothes? The story addresses that. Why do humans not have a penal bone? Perhaps the story addresses that as well. But there are other ways that human sexuality is so very unique and so very different. If you think about females, for example, uh, homo sapien females do not experience a recognizable bodily change signifying their fertility. Uh, the evolutionary purpose for this, we believe, is, 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 is really quite simple. It, it's so that women could have lots and lots of sex and, and ultimately with lots and lots of different partners. And unlike other animal species, homo sapien females will engage in sexual activity at times that are not conducive for conception. If you think about dogs, for example, dogs, female dog, when it goes into heat, very interested in copulation, uh, will do anything it can to get out of the house and engage with other male dogs. Once that cycle passes, that little dog has absolutely no interest in sex whatsoever. It, unlike homo sapien females can and will engage and enjoy sex after menopause, uh, during pregnancy, uh, it, it, and, and, and even they, at least physiologically, cannot tell. It's not like the, there's different coloration in the bottom or, or, or buttocks or something that happens with other species. It, the ovulation is hidden. And that's a very important anthropological trait that humans have. Um, women, humans, females will enjoy sex during non-fertile periods. And that makes us as a species very different than the animals. And so, um, I, it, you know, if we just talk anthropologically, though, this, this does tie into other uh, physiological traits that homo sapiens have. The, um, the male penis is shaped very differently than the penises that are found on other animals and the other specifically primates as well. 
uh, with the large gland at the end, studies have been shown that the, the shape of the male uh, genitalia is to designed to extract previous sperm that had been shot into the woman's vagina. Um, I'm, this is an adult conversation, obviously, but I'm just telling you, it's it, it, the humans are designed, it's for specifically women. I, we, we so often think of them as, as subjects, as, 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 as entities that aren't as sexual as, as men and, and, and human. And I mean, just generally speaking, male and female sexuality is, is different, generally speaking. And, and yet that observation is really coming to us from the Renaissance and with lots of of um, problematic anthropological views that are tied to religion, of course, and presenting women in a very negative way as temptresses and as um, guardians of sexuality and modesty and as as entities that are not interested in that. Well, well, I mean, the female, the clitoris is is designed for one purpose, and that is to produce pleasure, sexual pleasure. It can't be bad. It can't be wrong. In fact, that's what our evolutionary design is for. And um, unlike, and the, the female climax, unlike the male climax, is not directly connected with, um, with reproduction. Um, the male climax is connected with ejaculation, whereas a female it, it, uh, climax is, is, it serves an entirely different purpose. So it, it, it's fascinating. It, and, and in fact, um, Women as are created biologically to be hypersexual, to enjoy it and to enjoy sex. Um, we could get into female sexual vocalization, which anthropologists have studied, um, which is much uh, different than male vocalization during a climax. Female vocalization tends to become very rapid with regular rhythm that um, includes equal note links and intervals between notes, which Again, male vocalization typically lacks. And the evolutionary design for this seems to be that when we were and our ancestors living in an environment unlike the one we live in today, that this would was designed to excite and entice other males to, to participate to so for, for sperm competition for, for, for healthy offspring. We have to remember that our species, Homo sapiens, we have been on this planet for not a very long time and for 90% of our history, we, before the agricultural revolution, we lived in hunting and gathering communities, which were fiercely egalitarian, sharing things, food, resources, and including sexuality. It's not until the, um, it's not until the agricultural revolution that happens about 10,000 BCE that all of a sudden, property rights, the controlling of female sexuality, knowing whose offspring it belongs to who, all of that becomes very important to maintaining social stability and then is incorporated into religious constructs. It, just to jump in, I mean, yeah, we were talking sorry. before that we were talking, no, no, good. We were talking before the show. I mean, I was, I put a accidentally, but I put a comment into a, a thread with you guys where we were, I was talking about sex at dawn with Christopher Ryan. Yeah. And again, I want to make sure I get her name right. Um, Cecilda Jetha, uh, was, is her name as Christopher Ryan's wife. Mm -hmm. But, uh, in that book, it covers a lot of the same kind of ground. If in a tribe, if all the men think they might be the father of the child, there is much more protective, uh, inclinations. There's much more of helping to raise them, helping them to, to, uh, be a positive factor in their life. And so there's, 
evolutionary benefit to a woman having sex with multiple partners within a tribe and there being some confusion about who the father is. Uh, it, you know, it's a wonderful book. I, I do recommend it. I love that one and Sapiens as well. Those are both two very popular introductions to a general audience on some fascinating subjects. Thank you, Bill. Yes, I would recommend it. And, and it, you know, it really does show that, you know, and look, they talk a lot about monogamy and how problematic it is for our species. And if you just think about, I don't know what the statistics are, but what, I mean, in, an Amer in the United States of America, about 2 million mar marriages per year are performed is my understanding. And, um, but there's something like, it's, it's like almost 900,000 divorces every single year. So the divorce rate at, for a first marriage is like 41%. And then it, it grows up exponentially from there. It's like up into 60 per second and it keeps on going. Um, monogamy is difficult. If this is really God's plan to have one man and one woman and to have them married for time and all eternity and children have a right and everything that we're talking about is really the plan, then it's one that's not working very well. Yeah. And it's not working very well. Not Tell me about it, David. Not because we are inherently evil or bad. It's because we for our evolution and DNA evolved in such a way for us to be successful as a species. And we are fighting against that in so many different ways. And of course, I'm going to go back to what you were talking about, Bill, and caring for um, as a group in a small hunting and gathering community, the offspring that would be produced. I believe that that's also one of the reasons biologically why homosexual um, humans are born into the tribe. Because all of a sudden now you have someone who um, is not necessarily competing to create offspring, but yet is part of the tribe. And, you know, and not to stereotype, but it is many homosexual people are amongst the kindest, most loving humans that you can you can interact with. And so to it makes sense from an evolutionary standpoint to have some humans that would evolve with um I hate to use the term same sex attraction because of, but attracted to the same their same sex their same gender and it works and it helps them to be a functioning and beautiful and creative member of the tribe and the community where can they fit into this narrative they cannot and so it becomes very problematic for me as a, a father with two adult children that are a part of the LGBTQ community and many LGBTQ um, plus friends and, and that I that I care deeply about. I will share this. I know I wanted to get this story out um, in in our conversation, and I know we're gonna we got some more to talk about. But hey, David, oh, before yeah. you share the story, can I just interject one thing because yeah. there is an observation okay. that I've had that deals with this uh, relationship you talked about the difference between animal sex and human sex. Mm -hmm. And the question is this: is why is it that Canadians like to have sex? doggy style <laughs> and the answer is so they can both watch the hockey game on tv <laughs> ah. oh, I, okay that's so, terrible so that's in an anthropological <laughs> journal i read that somewhere uh, yeah okay so i'm sorry go ahead with your story no you're no you're it's it, you know i i guess i the reason i feel so passionately about this is because I am not opposed to these religious beliefs that are adhered to by Latter-day Saints. I just feel that it is imperative that those who are going to adhere to it understand 
anthropology, the basics of anthrop human anthropology, like we're talking about, the basics of, 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 of biblical scholarship that help us understand the original purpose and function of these narratives, and, and then to take a critical approach that is going to be less harsh and will do less harm, certainly to homosexual members of the LDS faith, but to heterosexual men and women as well, because all of us are damaged by inappropriate and um, understandings of human sexuality and, and these texts and how they evolved and how they, they came together. I, I, and if with that segue, and, and then I'm going to pause and let you guys ask questions and we can, we can just talk. Cause I think after I get this out, maybe I'll have about kind of what I wanted to talk about and share. And that is, um, you know, I, uh, I've gone through a lot of changes in my life. I, I, um, I do not participate, um, with the LDS church. I've not been to an LDS, um, service of any sort in four or five years now, I guess. I don't know exactly. I've, I've lost track and I, um, I, my story is well known. The family proclamation in November um, 2015 was very difficult for me personally and left a deep wound. Um, my story is well known. But I wanted to share that, you know, it was some time ago now that um, I was with uh, a couple of, I was with some close friends. And one of the things that I like to do, I think my best advice that I could give to people is to think critically and learn about these things and, and have healthy approaches to to scripture, to religion, and to sexuality. Um, and, but anyway, coming back then, uh, the best advice I could give is find your people and dance. And it's what I like to do. I like to go out with my friends and dance and have a good time. And it's, I, 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 I like that more than scholarship these days. So um, anyway, going back, I was with some friends of mine and um, with a, a couple of returned LDS missionaries who have left the church Two men um, served missions, went through a lot of, experienced a lot of trauma, and they are married and happily married now. And we were together on one evening, and I was with these two men, and I knew their background, and I knew what they had been through, and I knew the suffering and the trauma and the challenges. And they were dancing together, and they were kissing, and it, they were so happy and so in love. And it spoke to my heart at such a deep level. Um, it was beautiful. And it was so beautiful that I became emotional and I started to weep. I started to cry because it was so beautiful that the love that they shared and they had experienced and the trauma that they had overcome, it was a deeply emotional moment for me. And then honestly, it transitioned and my thoughts went from feeling the beauty of it to one of, of sincere of sincere pity, and I hate to use that word because it's such a negative word, but I, I don't know what else word to use other than that, for those who are trapped in religious homophobia or in religious, in, 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 in sexual, in, in sexual understanding that comes from religion that is create that uh, does not allow them to see the beauty that is found in human sexuality in all of its beauty in all of its diversity in all of its forms um i strongly believe that human love in all of its forms is the greatest power in the universe that i've encountered and it's not just sexual the love that i have with my grandchildren and with my children with my friends but human sexual love and that expression is powerful and beautiful too and should be celebrated in my opinion and 
And, and anyway, going back to my story, I thought about members of the church that are trapped in religious homophobia, and I felt so sorry for them. But how sad that you cannot see how amazing this is, how beautiful, how powerful, how wonderful this is, and cannot appreciate it. And, and, and I've gone from there, and I've transitioned to other places in my life, and I thought, you know, it's really sad if, if somebody never gets to experience what it's like to sit down and drink a beer with a friend or to have a cup of coffee. And some of the things that I never experienced because of my devotion and love to the LDS church, which I had for so many years, and things now that I am able to appreciate and enjoy, I am just very grateful for that. And, and I'm, I'm so happy for my life now. It's, I'm, I'm happier than I've ever been. And I, I don't know, in that moment, you guys, I just felt this deep sense of sorrow for those who are trapped and cannot experience love and, cannot, and are gonna go through a life and not see it. And to me, that is a great tragedy and a great loss. And so that's ultimately why I still wanna do podcasts like this. I still wanna talk about this. I still wanna talk about this account. I still wanna talk about these documents, not because I wanna tear down religious constructs or make people feel bad for their religious beliefs, but because I, there's, there is a lot of happiness and there is a lot of joy and there is a lot of love to be experienced. And it can be experienced even by believing Latter-day Saints if they will take a critical approach to their scripture and to scientific analysis and to love and human sexuality. That's what I wanted to share today. So that's why that's why I came up. Well, thank you. Uh, I'm looking at some of the comments as they're being flashed up on the screen, and it appears that there's a lot, a lot of people who are very happy you came on too and who are learning a lot from what you've said. Oh, good. I, I, one thing, and, and, you know, I highly, again, that book, Sex at Dawn, it's a, it's a good one. I mean, read it. It's going to be shocking and it's, it's going to be a different way of looking at things. Um, and I would go back to, you know, the, at the end of the, at the conclusion of the book, they talk about how men, for example, um, how they crave novelty and there's a difference between sex and love and how men, if they do not have novelty sexually, especially in their, their latter years, that it actually reduces the testosterone level. It not only therefore makes life more difficult to live, but actually causes health problems. So you're going to get a lot of that. Now, all of that having been said, that doesn't mean that everybody should go off and become polyamorous immediately tonight and leave the church and go become polyamorous. That's not what I'm suggesting at all. I'm, um, I'm not suggesting that, but I think that we, because we have the cognitive ability as human beings to be able to control our nature and our evolutionary DNA so that it leads us to what we know will emotionally and psychologically and spiritually bring us the greatest happiness. But controlling our decisions and our life and the path that we take is not the same thing as just simply fighting against our, our, our evolutionary DNA, whether that is towards heterosexual practices or homosexual practices or whatever sexuality that we prefer. If we are just trying to subjugate and fight and fight and fight against it, that leads to mental health crisis. It leads to problems. It leads to suicide. It leads to all sorts of negativity and it should not exist. But so I'm not suggesting everybody goes running off and has, you know, multiple affairs or do anything like that wouldn't necessarily lead to the greatest happiness. What I am suggesting is that we have a healthy approach, that we not be hard on each other for our, our, our mistakes and our challenges, our desires, and that we ultimately recognize that sexuality and human love exist in, on a spectrum of diversity. It's beautiful in all of its forms, and people should be able to pursue 
what will bring them the greatest happiness, joy, and fulfillment in this life. And that is the key to true spirituality, in my opinion. So to the extent that this document or the readings that come from it keep people from being able to experience that joy, I'm going to keep coming on. I'm going to talk about it. Well, great. That's a wonderful conclusion. I know that Maven's here. Maven, did you, did you have something you wanted to say? Now you're muted, I think. Thanks. Phil was trying to point down for me for that. Um, yeah, I just wanted to add my two cents that this is a part of my story that isn't shared, but it's one of the things that uh, towards the end, while I was still a believer that was causing me quite a bit of distress was just about the idea of marriage. And I was realizing that um, I just, I really hated the idea that if a, a Mormon man, that if I'm doing everything right and I'm going to marry him in the temple, um, that he's supposed to be, you know, sexually pure all this time, which, you know, I, I seriously had my doubts even then that I would marry someone that had never done anything that they were not supposed to do. But even then, I hated the idea that the only approved way for you know, my future husband to to get this sexual pleasure was through the use of my body. It just seems so weird to me and extremely strange. And just once I thought of it like that, um, I don't, just the idea of marriage just became so stressful to me. It already had been. But it really it just really took out because I didn't feel like I had I felt like it would be mean if I ever didn't want to, um, you know, because, again, I know that, you know, what the men have needs, women have needs, too. But I just really felt like I didn't have as much of a choice as I used to think I did, I guess, if that makes sense. So I really like a lot of the things that you've shared here. And, you know, if it if it wasn't so much. Yeah, just this monogamy where like you can only if that makes sense i don't know i it's it's making sense to me um and cultural anthropology that's my background that's what i got my degree oh, in. I was at byu so we i did not do a sexuality course uh in anthropology um but uh i mean it, it did come up sometimes but yeah not as like a, a subject that you would spend a class you know or like you know a class on during a semester but anyway thank you so much for what you've shared Oh, you're welcome. I, 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 it is a topic that is important. We need to have a healthy approach to spirituality and sexuality and its diversity in various forms and, and not beat each other up. And the truth is, is, you know, we talk openly about masturbation for a, a second, you know, especially how important it is it for women to learn how their body works how, what feels good for to them so that they can then share that with their partners. Uh, so many Latter-day Saint young women are, are, are afraid of their bodies because of the way that we raise them and we teach them. Uh, and, and, and all of a sudden then it, it leads to sexual frustration on their part, on their, their husband's part. So um, we have a lot of unhealthy perspectives and I'm not a therapist. I'm a historian of, of, of religion who's interested in anthropology, but I appreciate what you're sharing on that. And it's in the openness that you're sharing that because um, sexuality, healthy sexuality is central to our psychological well-being as human beings. It absolutely is. We have to have good sex. We, we, we do. So go have it. I'm putting this comment on uh, from Mormon movements. It's what I was trying to say too. Yeah. I didn't feel like my body was my own anymore. I really did feel like an object at that point when I came to that realization. So 
And that's tied, of course, to the perspective that we find actually in the Hebrew Bible. And if you think about it, women are, we talk about marriage and the biblical marriage. Well, biblical marriage is not something we actually want to recreate if you look at it, because the woman is created literally as she's viewed as property rights. And everything, you see that it, actually in Exodus chapter 20 with the Ten Commandments, it's written towards a male audience, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's ass, thy neighbor's maidservant, maidservant maid and maidservant and wife, you know, it's, she's possession. It's why a bride price is paid for her. It's why if a woman is raped in one of the legal collections, you must go to her father and pay her father. And then she must marry her rapist because women are property. And it all ties back naturally to the, um, I really, to the agricultural revolution when women become property rights, and we are concerned now about their bodies and the child that comes out of them. Well, the child that comes out, if it, we know that the child is related to the woman, that's very obvious, but we have to take the woman's word that, you know, the child belongs to this man. And so controlling female sexuality, not just in the Bible, but in, uh, from that time forward has become a very important concept that is found not only religion, but religiously, but politically. So what you're sharing is not unique. I wanted to add another point, if that was okay. This is going back way to the beginning of the discussion where we're talking about Adam and Eve. Um, it occurred to me also, um, and, and this is not a new idea to a lot of people in the chat, I think, either. But um, uh, when talking about the church's view of pregnancy and women having children and um, just the... I feel like uh, the men in the church, the leaders especially, but but even husbands that love their wives very much, really take for granted uh, the what a woman goes through with her body, with the pregnancy. And and in, no, they praise us. They say it's amazing, but it, it's also expected of us. And I feel that part of the, I guess the, I can maybe kind of flippant ideas toward, you know, where we're, we're supposed to just start having children right away when we get married. Um, the, the idea that we might not feel ready or that we could be scared to is not an okay idea. It's not a good reason to not have kids. So, um, and I think it's kind of partly around this because it's scripturally there that it's going to be painful. So, you know, I, I think men, I think a lot of men with this belief uh, and background with the Genesis story, just take for granted that women will have children and that it'll be painful, but that's just what we do. And that's what we were made for. And that's, and that's that. So it's, it's easy for them to uh, want to legislate that and control that because it's something they don't actually have to face. And they see it as something that comes from God and the pain we go through. It's a punishment. It's, it says there directly that it's from God, that God did that to us. So. Yeah. And, it, and, if, and if we look at it, you see it also in pornography. I mean, it, most pornography it presents women, you know, experiencing what, if you understand sex, is not something that's going to be something that will pleasure a woman. And it treats her as an object, even in outside of religion, but even in erotic literature. And, and of course, it, I, I, that's problematic as well, because then LDS young men, I mean, they're, where are they getting their sex education? They're not getting it, they're getting it from church, I guess, and which is unhealthy. They're get, not getting it usually in in the public school setting, certainly if they're in Utah. And, and so they're turning into getting online. And the, I would argue that, you know, I don't know, I'm not an expert in pornography, but I just, my exposure to it has been that the most of it is, is pretty denigrating to women in a way that I, I, I 
I, but what it bothers me. So it's not just even religion. I can go on the other side and say, you know, we've got some problems and I'm not anti eroticism or pornography. I just, I'm, I'm all about consent and love and making sure that people are taken care of men and female and anybody in between and non-binary and everything else. Um, just to put a plug in for the sex at dawn book. Um, when I read that for the first time, I've actually read it, I think three times at this point. Wow. That's awesome. What I thought was fascinating, David, was it, it tries to tackle how sexuality developed over the history of the human species. And that's difficult. But another facet of it was it also went across the the breadth and space of the planet in the modern moment. And Mormonism and Western culture presents to us this idea that here's the way humans have done this since the beginning of time. And the reality is, even in this moment, as we go across cultures, uh, various uh, societies or tribal systems, sexuality is practiced in so many different ways that for any system to come forward and say, here's the way God wants it, this is the way it's always been, to be honest, is just ignorance of how humans have unfolded throughout history. Well said. It, it is, I love, they've got some interesting stories in there about hunting and gathering communities and how they view sexuality as, as so very differently than, than we do. And it ties together to what I was trying to say at the beginning of the of the podcast or broadcast, it was that um, if really that was the plan from the beginning, man, woman, marriage, children, that's not how most homo sapiens have, have lived. And it's not how most of us live happily today either, right? Yeah, I, I was mentioning... Oh, go ahead, go ahead, a few people in the comments have asked if you have anything to say about heavenly mother or mothers. Um, I mean, it depends. If you're asking my personal belief, I don't believe in an interventionist deity of any sort any longer. I'm, I'm a human spiritual humanist. Um, so heavenly you father, heavenly mother. There were some at least traces of um okay. deities maybe in the old testament i don't know if that's what they were asking for i think they are asking yeah for i mean if we go down that area then then we can talk about about um that um one of the things that I, that i argued and i i lost my passion for the the subject and so i had planned on turning um a couple of articles into my analysis of genesis chapter one which i i, I I still stand by, but one of the things that I argue there is that um, the logical way to read Genesis chapter one, verses 20, verse 27, is that um, God made them in the image of the gods, male and female, rather than the image of God or in the image of Elohim. And what that is implying in Genesis chapter one is that the that men are created in the image of the male God and that the um, women are created in the image of, of female divinities um you know there are absolutely allusions to female goddesses um legitimate female goddesses that would have been believed in and worshipped in ancient judean society all throughout the hebrew bible even the metaphor that is often used uh in the prophets for god and his wife and and you know israel is presented as the wife and she's unfaithful and she did this and hurt him 
all of those those metaphors just don't come out of thin air. They come out of the fact that there is a belief in male and female's divinities in ancient Judean and Israelite society. And we do see traces of that without question arise in the Hebrew Bible, including in Genesis chapter one, as I mentioned, I believe that. So yeah, I mean, what do you want to call her? Heavenly, Mo Heavenly Mother is probably too LDS um, of a term, um, but there are, yeah, I mean, they're, they're female. Going back to what I was talking about, if we're, if my analysis of Genesis chapter two through three is correct, that, that the story is to explain that the humans gained sexuality like the gods and therefore are not sexual in the way that animals are sexual, but instead behave like the gods in ancient Near Eastern tradition, then that tells you right there that there must be female gods and male gods and that they're having intercourse. <clears throat> right. You know, I so I guess uh, and I, I have so many questions. We yeah. can go on all night, I'm sure. But I do want to be mindful of the time and of our listeners and allow them to ask questions. Um, I mean, I'll just tie this off with I understand that one of the female, ancient female Canaanite slash Israelite deities was the Asherah, who was frequently symbolized by a tree. Yeah, correct. Which again takes us, connects uh, ultimately with the garden imagery, right? right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I won't go beyond that to talk about how that actually seems to be reflected in the Book of Mormon and First Nephi. But, but <laughs> I knew you were I knew you were going to go there because I know your apologetic mind. Daniel C. Peterson, Nephi and his Asherah. Okay, it's so. a cool it's a cool article. Do I think it? it I, it's a cool reading. I, I I've always felt that was a cool reading. Well done, Dan Peterson. That's a that's a fun way to read that section. Does it does it mean the Book of Mormon is ancient? Well, we know the answer to that. Uh, yeah, I think at a minimum, it shows a greater emphasis on Mary than we might have hitherto suspected in the Book of Mormon. And the Asherah part is a questionable link, perhaps. But regardless, um, let's open it up to callers. Did you want to mention this, Bill, or do you want me to say, what is this dinging sound I hear throughout the entire podcast? Uh, yeah, like I am so sorry. That is like my friend's. I got friends that are texting me and they're like, Hey, I like that comment. And they, Hey man, I got friends. They just commented. They said, Oh, we have to have sex to be happy. So go have it. And they're quoting me. They're like, we love it. Oh so my gosh. I'm, getting, I'm sorry. I don't know how to turn off the notification. It's okay. I wasn't, I wasn't sure. I thought maybe an entire legion of angels had gotten their oh, man, wings I, during tonight's podcast. I thought, I thought, I didn't think you guys could hear that. I'm so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's just been Claire, dinging I, off the you hook. Guys, stop texting me. I don't know how to turn off my notifications. I'm an old man. I usually man. just throw the phone against the wall. <laughs> there you go again. <laughs> I tell you, eventual got his wings. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you just turn down the volume. Can you do that uh, with the volume? Well, then I would. Then I and and then uh, no, it's not my phone. It's it's from the laptop that's coming through. Oh, okay. I well, know. regardless, all of David's. See, this is why I have no dings on my side because I have no friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah so so i love you guys i thank you for your support you guys are so beautiful <laughs> but i quit I, yeah. dinging okay I quit dinging me no no I, I, I <laughs> all right so oh, the uh friends. the victory for satan segment of the uh show we've already got three calls on the line if uh you, we're kind of letting three calls in at a time so when somebody hangs up another call will be able to come in uh 662 mormons or 662 667 666 mark of the beast and then a seven at the end uh looks like we've got a tyler tyler you are on 
Mormonism live. I'm hoping you'll come through. Are you there, my friend? Oop, give me a second. Let me, uh, it's going to take me just a moment. Sorry, guys. For whatever Tyler is out in front of the Masonic temple. For whatever reason. A little Masonic humor for Give me a second, show. Tyler. Let's try that one is going again. over like a lead balloon. I I'll go back to the Canadian jokes. Give me one moment, my friend. Or maybe the Michael Jackson jokes. That, that went over big last week. Can you even hear me right now? I, I can hear you. I'm just trying to get him okay. in. So now, Tyler, you should be on now. Let's see. try it again. Okay. There, perfect. Yeah. Okay, there we go. Can you hear me? Yeah, we hear you now. So perfect. You're on the show, yeah, my friend. What's sorry, on your mind? Um, yeah, my question's a little off topic. Um, I'm the Skylar that was in the chat. And like I said, I broke my shelf about three weeks ago, thanks to your guys' uh, <laughs> second anointing episode. And since then, I've uh, listened to every single episode. So my quick question would be to all of you, um, how do you find purpose after that moment of just never being able to go back? Wow. That's a big question, my friend. Is it Tyler? Um, Sorry, I hope it's simple enough. <laughs> no, is that Tyler? Tyler. Mm -hmm. Tyler. Or Skyler. Skyler. Yeah, sorry. The Tyler was what came up on the caller ID thing. So, yes. Okay. Skyler. Hey, Skyler, here's the deal, all right? You've lived your life having other people tell you what your purpose is. Now you get to enjoy the great adventure of finding out for yourself what your purpose is. Mm. I like that. Amen. Can I, can I say, share something really quick? Um, you know, I, I did those Mormon stories interviews a while ago and they, um, you know, it was a while ago. Now I I'm, I'm in a different place and, um, I look a little different now. My beard's gotten white and longer and, you know, we all get older, but I, I, so I'm not recognized as much as I used to be, but about two weeks ago, I was, um, I was in the grocery store here locally. I was in Winco and I, I walked, <laughs> I walked into the produce section and all of a sudden this, this young man came in in his thirties or so with a little kid and he, he just paused and he said, Hey, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, I, uh, he said, uh, I just haven't introduced myself. I've seen some podcast and followed your work and it's, it's meant a lot to me. And I said, Oh, I, I thank you so much. I, I appreciate the, the kind words. And, and, um, and then, um, he started to cry and he said, I'm sorry. He said, I can't believe I, I've just bumped into you like this. I've appreciated your work, but today's been one of the hardest days of my life. I came out to my family that I um, am no longer you know, participating in the ALDS church. And it's been very difficult. And uh, I just, I just, I just grabbed that either kid to me, I'm 50 year old man. I just grabbed that kid and I just held him right there in the, in the, in the produce section. And I just told him it's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. It's, it's going to be okay. And I, I, I loved RFM. Your, yeah, I loved your answer. You find the purpose. Um, but I will say that it it is hard. Relationships are, are difficult. I still have familial relationships that are difficult to navigate. I don't want to sugarcoat it. But all I can tell you is this, um, and I sincerely state this, that I am happier now at this point in my life than I have ever been. And um, to be spiritually independent to be able and, and i don't look at and, and i i come from a place of privilege um i was a white heterosexual 
Mormon scholars. I mean, I just, I mean, I've just, my place, my experience was a, one of privilege and I recognize that. There are others who were not as fortunate, who were traumatized by their experience in ways that, that are very difficult. But from my perspective, from where I, I see more Mormonism as training wheels. I, I appreciate the good stuff I learned. I, I learned about community. I learned about service. I learned about kindness. And you don't give up on any of the good. Um, it, it, but now I get to ride the bike. I get to ride the bike wherever it goes, which is exactly what RFM is saying. So find that purpose and, and, and find out what it is and, and be free and enjoy and, and be happy and celebrate. Find your people and dance. It's a, it's, it's a journey that is difficult, but is, it's worth it. And I, I, anyway, that's my feelings. Thanks for the call, Skylar. Did you Thank have you anything guys. you wanted to add to that, Maven or Bill? I did. Um, go ahead, please, Maven. Yeah, just because this is still really recent for me. I mean, it's been a couple of years, um, but I absolutely faced the same thing, um, especially because I never felt like I was really allowed to, or if I ever did have any kind of hobby, I would have to give it up if there was ever a chance that it would get in the way of marriage or children, et cetera. And so, yeah, I remember feeling this way. And I mean, even just trying to figure out what uh, was me, what the, you know, leaving the church what was me that wasn't the church. And I did come up with a few things. And then from there, I was able to build on. So I knew that I always loved my family. That was something that didn't change. If anything, um, I think I love them more. And then um, my journey involves ending up on this show. And uh, yeah, just, just learning for myself and figuring out for myself, especially the things that I just never allowed myself to think I was, you know, would be good for me. Um, and, and, this is one of them just being part of a show or even being on air. I just never considered that uh, I had anything to offer <laughs> for something like that. So yeah, once you figure it out, it's, you know, Nicole talked about this too. Um, when we had our episode that we both were on, when, once you do kind of figure it out, like it's really exciting again. I, I don't know if you can go back to a time in your life when you were younger, maybe a high school graduation or, or whatever it was where you, the time where you felt like the world was your oyster and just everything was in front of you. Um, that's what it becomes again, once you get past this rough part. So good luck. Yeah. And, and the only thing I would add is, is if anybody comes along trying to tell you what your purpose is, I would be aware of them. Yeah. And the other thing is I've seen also on some comments here is that we can't tell you what your purpose is, but what we can tell you is that we are here for you to support you, to care about you, and to accept you as you are. And you can lean on us while you find out what your purpose is. You're not alone. But the main thing is, yeah, the whole world is open to you. And that can be overwhelming because you can do anything now. So what are you going to do? Well, just think about what your passion is, what you find interesting, and pursue it because now you can. Amen. All right. Next uh, call, I believe this is going to be Brett. Brett, you are on Mormonism Live uh, with David Bakavoy. What's on your mind tonight? Who did you say? Uh, Brett, right? Oh, yeah, that's me. Okay, my friend. You're on. Um, anyway, so I had to, I had to call in um, just to publicly pronounce my love for David because he's like one of the kindest like most genuine humans I have ever met. And what you see in David is what you get. And I was fortunate 
um, last year in August to meet David because once upon a time, a long time ago, he taught seminary in a small town in Utah in Grantsville, and he taught my wife in seminary. And we reconnected with David uh, last summer, and he's become more or less family to us. And he's a great guy. I just wanted to let everybody out there know that he's amazing, and we love him, and we support him. And, yeah, that's all. You guys do great. I love your show. Love it. Thank you, my friend. Thanks, Brett. I just, man, I, I'm i beaming. I, I just love the love. And that takes me back to the other call. You know, it's tough, but it's so worth it because – I, I, and I don't regret the loss of time now either that's passed at age 50 because I kind of feel like a 21-year-old kid at age 50 now. And that, that time would have gone by regardless. And now I'm 50 and we go out with our people and we go dancing every weekend and we have live music every weekend and we just we just go experience life to the fullness. And 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 it's it's wonderful to do that. Find your people and dance is the answer to that, I think. And all, But I would also say don't give up on service. Um, I'm, I'm fortunate that with my career, I've been, I'm able to get in and really try to make a difference in people's lives, which is something we learned from Mormonism. And to the extent that we can do that, it does bring a lot of um, stability and, and peace and joy to what we're experiencing. In addition to the parties, the parties are good too. So do them both. Perfect. The, uh, the next call will be from John. John, you're on Mormonism Live with David Bakavoy. What's on your mind tonight? Hey, good evening. Uh, been a long time fan. Watch David uh, when he first showed up on Mormon Stories, and uh, I had a aha moment tonight when David was talking about hunter and gatherers and not having one man, one woman. My DNA is Heinz fifty-seven, and that kind of explains that. I mean, I'm Germany, France, England, Finland, all over the world. Have you ever thought about that? See, it's interesting. Thank you for the kind words. You know, there is a lot of, I mean, we are a hypersexual species. We, we have, we're obsessed with sex. We have sex way more frequently than almost any other species, except for those that we're most closely related to, like chimps and bonobos. So, yeah, but you're, that's one of the reasons we have populated to the extent that we have and, and have the diversity. So, yeah, I would. I think you're onto something there. And thank you for the kind words. Just us and the bonobos, David. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is interesting, right? Like the bonobos are non-monogamous. And then the gibbons, I think, are very monogamous. They pick one partner mm-hmm, and, you know. Mm-hmm. And so to see primates and to see the variation in them and to see how humans display certain traits from certain primate species and then other traits from other primate species and seem to play some of that middle ground in sexuality. Like we do crave some sort of consistency in a partner and humans, at least some of us are, as you pointed out, there's something that needs something more than one person. Right. And so humans are kind of experiencing the whole spectrum of, of sexuality. There's multiple mating strategies throughout evolution. Um, It's just interesting to see all that play out. Yeah. You know, and it's exactly right. And it's so it's, it's interesting. You know, I, I can't remember what I was going to say, but I was going to I was going to talk about. Um, oh, yeah. You're going back to the primates. What is it? It's like um, species that are non-monogamous, that are highly promiscuous. The males are typically 15 to 25 percent larger than the female, their sexual dimorphism in that sense. So 
I'm, and it's just everything that adds up to our our bodies is for is for sex and lots yeah. of sex, yeah. healthy sex. Yeah. Uh, Crisco will be our last call for the night. Crisco, you are on Mormonism Live. We've got David Bakavoy on. Uh, take us home, my friend. David, how you doing, my friend? I've actually Good. known David and his wife since we were all kids together in Poway. In case you don't know, David, this is Christian Burrell. So, oh, Christian. Uh, anyways, <laughs> I I had a couple quick things I wanted to mention and then one fast question, David. So uh, I, I'm stunned you've gotten this far in your conversation without mentioning barbecue once. Um, I'm deeply <laughs> offended by this, and I think you need to make up for that. Oh. Uh, number two, um, David is one of the most genuinely loving people in the entire world that I've ever met. And uh, I hope that people can see that in him as he discusses the sometimes difficult topics, which leads me into the question I have for you, Dave. Uh, much like um, listening to RFM's uh, interview on Mormon legal issues, which was fantastic, RFM, uh, people sometimes have to realize that different professions sometimes view things, including truth and reality and evidence, in slightly different ways than the general population does. Uh, there were several commenters in the chat, and we're a very close chat group, um, that were frankly quite upset at some of the things you were talking about as you discussed uh, tribal social behaviors, um, evolution of sexual species, uh, homosexuality, etc. And uh, I think that they didn't, maybe they didn't quite understand that you were speaking from a scholarly population stance. And I'm wondering if you could kind of speak to that to kind of help some of their questions. And that's it for me. Thank you. Thank you so much, Christian. It's good to hear your voice. Um, I didn't see, I, I, I was, I didn't have my screen open. I had the, um, I was just looking at the Bible on my screen. So I did, I didn't have yeah, anything, but maybe if we know, know what we're talking I about. I don't know if I saw it was much earlier and I haven't seen, I, I actually put in the chat for her to explain more um, what she was upset about. So I, I don't know exactly what it was. I just, I remember she said something that she thought that you were saying something misogynistic. And so I was asking her, what was that? Because I, I don't know. Well, um, I, I certainly, I certainly misspeak and I certainly say things that are misogynistic because I'm an imperfect person. So that's a possibility, but I, I, I'm, I appreciate a correction if that, if that's the case, I don't, I'm not aware. I can't think of what it would be, but if I did something, then I apologize. I do. I don't want to hurt people's feelings. And I, and I do recognize the, um, you know, that we're, it's a sensitive topic I, that we're, we're addressing here on so many levels. We're talking about people's deeply held. I didn't beliefs. catch it, but that doesn't mean, yeah, mm -hmm. I don't know. That's why I was trying to get some more mm -hmm. info, but yeah, I, I think. Maven, so. Maven, what I want to know is, did she like my Canadians joke? <laughs> I think she left before that. Yeah, yeah, she probably didn't like that one. If she had waited for that, we would have had her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, you know, and I, and I recognize, and I, it, it's a sensitive topic, but my, 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 at the end of the day, I, yeah, I, I thank you, Christian. I am sharing things from an anthropological perspective, um, and that doesn't mean it's absolute truth as well. I, I shouldn't suggest that. And there are discussions and debates as to, 
you know, these sorts of things. Even the book Sex at Dawn um, is actually taking a different view on human sexuality than the one that I had studied anthropologically when I was writing my dissertation. From my dissertation perspective, it was uh, most of the anthropological studies I was seeing at that point were arguing that um, one of the reasons that there's a female, th that females hide their ovulation uh, is for the purpose of uh, constantly keeping the men around so that they don't know when the time of fertility is. And so they're, they're constantly interested in sex and therefore bringing back meat and sustenance to help care for the children. Um, and that, so in other words, it says if the woman is giving sexual favors and pleasures uh, to the men to keep them around, to keep them interested in. Well, that was kind of a typical perspective anthropologically at the time. And it's really the exact opposite that the authors of Sex at Dawn take. So, um, yeah, when it comes to anthropology, I'm not presenting absolute truths. Um, there's been some, uh, you know, there are some debates as to some of the arguments that are made at, in, in Sex and Dawn and at Sapiens, another book that we mentioned. So yeah, don't ever take any of those books and think, ah, this is truth with a capital T. But this is a way that many scholars understand these things now. And everything that I've shared thus far certainly makes sense to me. And that's why I find still find worth in discussing it. Wow. So, Bill, you said Sex at Dawn, that book. You've read it three times. Yeah, I find it fascinating. Another one is Mating in Captivity by Esther Perel. Um, I think that's a fantastic book. Uh, Christopher Ryan, who's one of the authors of Sex at Dawn, went on to also do a book, uh, Civilized to Death, which plays along the same line and goes a little further. I was going to say, if you've read it three times, you must be up to sex in the afternoon by now. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, maybe. Um, I, I have a healthy sex life. I'm I'm pretty happy with it. Okay, quit your bragging. Hey, you know, also <laughs> the, the same the same male author actually is interviewed on. Um, there's a Netflix series explained, and hmm. uh, and they they talk once on a DNA, and they've got one on cannabis. They have all these different topics, and one is on monogamy, and they do interview. Christopher on that one as well. Yeah. That may that may interest our. It's about twenty minutes or so, and is kind of a a fun little survey to some of these topics. And he's on Joe Rogan's podcast as well, so you can check him out there too. Um, I just find the topic interesting. I I think sure. it's I I think humans have evolved across thousands of years in a very different way than the systems around us have told us. And I think it does us good to explore what that looked like, at least to test assumptions and to see if maybe there's a better way to live a life that doesn't have as much shame and as much uh, compromising of your authentic self. Did you turn on your God reverberation effect there? No, I don't know what's going on. Um, I don't Can know. I also mention while you're checking that out, this is not a joke, by the way. Uh, I'm currently reading a book by Thomas Hardy called Jude the Obscure which he's an English author, 19th century. And in it, he addresses and explores this entire issue of whether strict monogamy is the most healthy thing for people. And it was way before its time it got banned, but it's a really fascinating read. It's a classic book, and I would encourage anybody to read it, whether you're interested in that or not. And I wanted to just add one more perspective. And I want to thank Joan uh, for saying this, that humanity is really complex. Um, and so I just, I did want to just, I guess, put a voice for the other side of the spectrum. Um, 
I guess there's always going to be outliers. So not everybody is hypersexual. There's definitely people on the low or no end of that. And so I just wanted to put that out there and that there's also evolutionary um, advantages to communities, you know, with people like that as well, um, especially in just, you know, helping around uh, with resources or with children, because raising children isn't a very intense thing to do. So it's always good in the healthy communities that there's usually a lot more people around, which is part of the problem of the idea of the traditional nu nuclear family is that it really isolates um, children to just being under the charge of one person when that's normally that has not been the norm and uh, can be very a part of the reason why it's so difficult for for women who are doing that, who are stay at home moms um, to not have that extra help. But anyway, just wanted to put that in there. If someone says that the, that they don't feel very sexual or something, it's not helpful to say, well, that can't be because everybody needs sex or, you know, all humans are wired that way. I would say most of us are, but not all of us. No one way to be human, is there? Cool. Um, Maven, thank you for adding that. I think that's yeah. really important. And I think that uh, it was important that you mentioned that and i think david had sort of touched on that in passing he's talking about homosexuals and that there is an evolutionary reason and he was trying to be very very careful the way he phrased it but yeah. for homosexuals yeah i still brought it up because i i've heard the argument before that I, even if it's not procreative sex it's still a sexual drive so for someone to say uh that they don't or that it's extremely low um it's still, a, I guess, a harmful thing to say, like, well, there's got to be something when sometimes there really isn't. So Right. And there are people in, in society who are asexual as well. That's and, correct. And they are part of the entire system in the pattern as it is developed. And they have a critical place in society, I believe. And I think part of the challenge of the LDS Church is trying to understand that and incorporate it into its theology. I don't think it's trying to incorporate it into its well it kind of has to because there's so many single members of the church so i mean in a way i guess they're i don't know i don't think they've actually addressed it at all as that's why that's why i called it a challenge i was speaking oh, a little yeah. euphemistically there yeah yeah no man, thank you so much and i i appreciate that it's something i definitely want to um to show sensitivity towards because we have a lot of diversity in my own family i have that I that we just love and celebrate from a uh, you know you know from a non-binary adult child to with transgender partner and uh, you know I, I I have learned a lot over the years I was certainly indoctrinated into religious homophobia and a perspective that um, I've had to um, to 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 address throughout my life and I am uh, I I have. I've reached a point where I, I appreciate that and recognize that human diversity in all of its forms is, is good and serves a purpose. And there's no one way to human, as Bill said. Um, so, and I and I, and I just I, I can openly state that I I I feel that I've I I have a long way to go, and I I want to understand how to become better and more sensitive to the diversity and challenges that humans experience and face. Uh, but I also feel that I, I I recognize that I have come a long way. I I have I I feel beyond homophobic to the point now where I just it's just 
just the opposite. I delight, even if it has heterosexual man, of being around my gay friends and and seeing love in its diversity and form. Yeah. And it's, it's beautiful. It's, it's, yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. So I'm grateful for that. And I'm grateful for a chance to continue to learn and improve. So if I said something that offended, I'm sorry, unless it was something that I meant to say, and then I'm just sorry you're hurt. Thank you, Maven, for your perspective. Lots of people appreciating it. Thank you so much, David, for being here and being you. Thank you, Bill, for being my cohort in crime. And thanks to the audience for being here tonight. We've had a great night here at Mormonism Live. And we look forward to seeing you here next week. Same bat time, same bat channel. That's it. Awesome. Hey, thanks, guys, so much. It was fun. Thank you, David. Thank you, Maven. Have a great night, everybody. Good night. Bye, everyone.